everybody. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening to this week's Social Action Briefing. I am Craig Milch, and I am joined by Professor Jessica Mitchell. Hello, Jess. Hey, Craig. Um, So listeners of the show may have noticed that foreign policy is not our typical emphasis. Um, I personally, I don't know about you, Jess, but I've been asked by multiple people if we're going to talk about Ukraine. It was sort of popping off when we recorded last week, but just kind of almost pretended it wasn't happening um, because we didn't really mention it at all. But this week, we're going to. (laughs) Um, We're we're not going to. I'm, uh, we're not going to give the usual breakdown of what's happening, um, you know, that we try to give on topics, just more sort of how we're thinking about it. I'll say, um, well, just why don't you, how are you kind of thinking about the conflict, the invasion, and uh, sort of the whole situation? Yeah. So I think last Wednesday, neither one of us was pushing too much to talk about it because I don't know, in my head, I'm going, there's still time to turn this around. Like it really hasn't gone yeah. that far yet. And like, maybe they're just going to pull out. There was so much other stuff going on as well. And then it became really evident really quickly that that was not what was actually going to happen, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I think when we recorded, they were, had just occupied like the separatist regions, which is like yeah. sort of like Crimea-ish. So it was like, oh, maybe this like pretty shitty thing will happen and and then not much will happen for the next seven years (laughs) but that is not what happened yeah no that is not what happened at all and like before we even like jump too far into this I just want to say that like this shouldn't be happening there are people dying like I don't care like whose land it was whose land it wasn't like at the end of the day like there are People, you know, I don't care who they are, like dying in Ukraine right now because Russia is invading them. (laughs) And like, we can quibble about like where boundaries should be drawn for countries and all this stuff. But like, when one country starts killing people in another country, like that's really where like the the line needs to be drawn. Like it needs to stop. (laughs) And it's really, (laughs) it's like, it's one dude who decided to kill a bunch of people in another country. Like, and then, now there's, you know, there's Russians, millions and millions of Russians that have nothing to do with this. A lot of them actively don't want it. Some are like swayed by propaganda and think, well, it was going to happen to us anyway. I just, I just read, uh, it was like a blog post that a professor who reached out to tons of professors in Russia about thoughts on it and then uh, one one professor answered and sort of crystallized uh, sort of how I think they put it like half the people are thinking is that um, that they kind of were spun into believing that like if they if Putin didn't do this that the West was gonna hmm. aggress against Russia but either way like like we were saying like there's like in the in this response with all the economic sanctions and everything. Like Russia's economy is getting tanked and yeah, they're like trying to target the oligarchs and they're stealing the yachts, which is like a, which is like a fun subplot to the terrible thing that's happening. But like, 
there's a bunch of regular people in Russia, you know, non-oligarchs that are now going to live in a crushed economy. So it sucks for them too. And obviously for the Ukrainians that are fighting for their lives uh, admirably. And then of course, there's the component uh, when it comes to refugees, um, the, you know, Ukrainian refugees, at least the white ones, are being welcomed with open arms into, you know, Poland and other uh, European countries. The, like, people that, uh, like, emigrated from, like, Africa and were living in Ukraine and are trying to leave are, like, being told to, uh, like, get off the bus or the, the train or whatever and, like, and not being let through. And um, yeah. so that, they're, you know, the racism in the refugee process is, is a thing. And obviously in comparison to all the other refugee situations that have been going on, um, you know, that where none of them, no, no, no like amount of Syrian refugees, for example, has been welcomed the way Ukrainian refugees are. So that's a kind of a sickening aspect to this as well. Yeah. And I think it's really important to understand because someone, it was, it was not a social work student. (laughs) It was a freshman student and it's okay. Classrooms are a place to learn and better understand. But someone in my freshman seminar class last week made a comment about why aren't like the people of Russia protesting this? Like, why do they all, it wasn't protesting. It was, you know, and the Russian people agree with this. And I'm like, hold up for a second because this is a thing that happens a lot with countries that are currently socialist or previously had had like a, you know a strong socialist background like there's this belief that if you live in a socialist or a communist country that you all think alike and that is just so far from the truth like there is no country where there is universal agreement about anything that has happened and like the russian people are gonna suffer because of this like the Russian people are going to die fighting in this war for Putin. Um, and they're going to like, just be seriously harmed at home because of like the economic things that are going on that you were talking about. And unfortunately, part of the reason why sanctions are one of the first things that countries will do, especially places like the U S when stuff like this goes on is because they want essentially they're never going to say this, but they want the people to suffer so that they'll protest what's going on and, and try to convince the government to stop doing it. Um, there's really nothing to do to Putin. I mean, the guy is going to be rich no matter what. He is the dictator slash he uses the term president to refer to his office um, of Russia. Like he's going to eat. He's going to have somewhere safe to sleep. He has security. He is going to have whatever he wants and he's going to be able to do whatever he wants. There isn't really a way to punish him. Um, for what is going on, except to punish the people to get them to protest. And Russian people are protesting this and getting arrested in droves because you can't protest. I mean, look, there's a lot of parallels that you can make to what is going on in Russia right now and what has gone on in the last couple of years with like protesters in the U.S. getting arrested for peacefully protesting over many issues, but I'm specifically thinking about Black Lives Matter protests where people are getting arrested. Um, But there are like hundreds and hundreds of people getting arrested daily because you can't protest in Russia. You don't have that luxury um, to do that in Russia. So it's, it's, it's wild, but like just because the Russian government is the aggressor in this does not mean that Russian people are the aggressor in this. Yeah. So this is, this is the view from that 
Russian academic as to why the Russian people are not protesting uh, en masse. Is that how you pronounce it? En masse, whatever. I think it's um, en masse, but there are, <laughs> I mean, there have been quite a number of protests and quite a number of protesters. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I yeah. like I want to give like the Russian people like credit. I mean, they're taking a grave risk to their own life just to simply walk outside with a sign that says no more war or, or anything. Yeah, like no, for sure. Um, I think, but you know, not it's not the scale of say well, Belarus um had them, but now there's still the Russian puppet as the like leader of it but i think it was belarus that had some like pretty big protests belarus Um, has a bunch of like opposition like people who had to flee the country um and their families because of the belarusian um like i don't i i believe that they use the term president too um but their election in 2020 was completely rigged um and the the candidate who ran against the dude that's in office right now like i do, i still believe is like not in that country um mm-hmm. like had to flee that yeah it's a mess i mean it's it's a russian puppet <laughs> who's in yeah that. so so the reason why the protests are on a larger scale basically um one was the negative influence of the ussr beginning with the immigration after 1917 and Stalinist purges and ending with the destruction of the will to live freely to the falling apart of the country. People didn't live normally, so they don't want to live normally now. Those who protest are mostly very young. Um, Number two, a non-trivial share of people, (laughs) this is this person's words, are idiots. They can't, or for many reasons, don't want to absorb non-one-sided information and just want to be, quote, outside of politics. And the most accessible information is sadly propaganda. That bullet point is something we can understand, I'd say. Um, Three, propaganda is literally everywhere. On TV, it reaches absurd proportions. And besides that, uh, special bot farms write a huge number of online comments, forming a false public opinion and swaying those who are uncertain to their side. And then the fourth, um, is basically about getting uh, there's there's people that the Russian government has hired to just beat people up who show up for a demonstration and you know throw them in jail for 30 days you know fuck with their lives that's the gist this is like a longer bullet but so that's sort of uh, the, the reason given there um, and then the other the other aspect of this that um, I'm thinking about pretty often is and this kind of worrying you know um it's very clear that uh that it seems that putin miscalculated what was going to happen in terms of like uh the european union and other countries sort of rallying together um the resistance of the ukrainian people their willingness to fight um all kinds of other stuff that just uh you know, he thought it was going to be like a special op, like KGB style special op. That was, Mm -hmm. they're going to take Kiev on the first night. And then that was it. So it's definitely not, well, I'm not going to say definitely, but it seems to not be going as, as, as well as, as Putin wanted. Um, But, and, you know, and, uh, and like on social media, you know, that is being conveyed very well. Like the optimism and hope of the Ukrainian people is being conveyed very well. But, you know, a lot of, 
you know, experts I see on there kind of pointing out, you know, that Russia just has a giant army and like Putin is unlikely to back down because there's really a way for him to save face. So he's probably going to get to the point where he just starts bombing a lot. And that's going to really be ugly, a lot uglier than it has been. So I'm just sort of like bracing um, for that. Um, and then, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think it's like important to remember that like there has been a lot that's been done just in terms of the fact of like Ukrainian people fighting. There has been a lot that's been done, but there has been like an unprecedented level of international support for Ukraine. Like the one thing that really comes to mind is like Sweden breaking its like traditionally neutralist Switzerland. Yeah, Switzerland and Sweden, I think, too, though. Sweden, yeah, Sweden sent stuff, but but Switzerland, that was the, like, wow, breaking neutrality thing. But they both typically try to avoid involvement. Like, they both, I I mean, maybe Switzerland, like, more so than Sweden, but both of them, like, typically try to avoid all involvement in, like, conflict. And, you know, it's, like, wow, like, they're both helping, like, you know, there's so many like European countries. I mean, Ukraine, the Ukrainian president and with the support of like some other EU nations like applied for EU membership, which, you know, is really unlikely to happen. But the fact that people are even speaking out that leaders of other countries are actually speaking out saying this should happen and it should happen now kind of thing. Um, it's something that's surprising. I mean, the the the, yeah. the mobilization of political power is not an easy thing to do. You know, they usually typically just sway on the side of like the status quo. So the fact that like there are countries that, you know, typically try to stay not involved, speaking out about this is a lot. But at the end of the day, Russia has a huge army and an immense stockpile <laughs> of bombs that like may end up being the deciding factor in this if it really gets to that point which would just be out of control yeah um and also uh finland like like the the people of finland like want to join nato now that's a big change too um and then also so you know i don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with the background of uh president Zelensky, but he is a comedian that played uh a teacher that that um had a viral video of like being angry about the government go yeah it went viral in the show and then he became president in that show um and then he got elected president in real life but in the show there's a clip where he gets he's like walking into whatever the building is um and he gets a call and it's like congratulating uh congratulating him on acceptance into the european union and he gets all happy and then and then they're like oh wait no we we meant to we thought we were calling montenegro or something like that oh my god <laughs> wait that's from the um, show that clip i didn't see yeah that. okay yeah it's from the show and then uh yeah some and while we're on the topic some other videos that have gone around he won the ukrainian version of dancing with the stars uh so there's videos of him dancing and then he was a comedian and uh there's a bit where him and a partner and then the two other like guys uh play the piano um without their hands um they're using their 
genitalia. So that's the gag. It was like on stage in front of a big crowd. They end up playing uh, Hava Nagila at the end. Um, and that's who is uh, become like a worldwide profile in bravery. It might be like the most popular head of state in the world right now. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I'm like not opposed to, to anybody being able to run for president. However, I'm just opposed to Donald Trump being president. Like that's not the good <laughs> example of anybody who be president. Like, you know, I, I think we need more diversity in government and that includes occupation. And I usually talk about like social workers and teachers and nurses, but you know what? Like we need some comedians in government. We need some people, you know, to make us laugh and also do their job because I am sorry but there is not one living president that I could think of that would actually suit up and like fight in a war. Like they're going to send soldiers. They're not going to be a soldier. And I'm sure that there are many things that this individual has done wrong in their life. And there are many angles with which to criticize (laughs) the president of Ukraine. Um, But at the moment, he's definitely not doing the worst job in the world when it comes to running a country. (laughs) I give him credit for staying there and refusing to, um, you know, leave. Like there have been countries, including the United States that have offered to get him out of Ukraine and he chose to stay. Like that says a lot about a person's character. Oh yeah, the class now classic line of, I need ammunition, not a ride. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, and also his like theatricality is, has given, was given credit for like Germany and other EU countries, like changing their their view. Like Germany has, you know, stayed as non-militaristic as possible since World War II. Um, and obviously a state becoming more militarized is not a thing that uh, people that don't like military conflict, you know, which you're on or whatever, but, um, but apparently on, on a call with, uh, I think like the EU or, you know, whoever, it was a bunch of, you know, heads of state of uh, European countries. He basically made a plea for aid um, and said like, you know, this might be the last time, you know, I, I speak to you or, you know, implying that he's going to die or whatever. And, and that like he, he, he got the people listening emotional and then they helped him more. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing like that, you know, that's the thing that we criticize U.S. politicians about a lot is not being relatable or being robotic and things of that nature. You know, there is a way to balance, you know, the seriousness of the situation with comedy and nearly all situations. There's very few that I can think of where you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Like you have to keep people motivated through something like this, <laughs> especially yeah. something like this. Like this is a lot and it's going to be unbelievably traumatic, you know, indefinitely for the people who live in Ukraine and around Ukraine. Um, and there's a lot, there's so much that's wrong with what was going on with getting people out of Ukraine, especially like the, the racial injustice of like getting people out of that country the fact that Poland and other countries are actually just taking people and like not having an issue with people just crossing the border to get the fuck out of Ukraine needs to be the model for all of these situations because we don't do this in other countries. We didn't do this with Syrian refugees. We didn't do this with, you know, refugees from 
Iraq and Afghanistan when we were the country bombing them for really no particular reason other than we needed to demonize somebody like, you know, we left people trapped in these countries. And even with Ukraine, Biden came out and said, like, you know, it's like, it's great. Like people need to get out of Ukraine, but like the EU should bear the brunt of like the refugees. Like, why is it always somebody else? Like, why can't, if there are Ukrainian people who have family or just the desire to come to the United States, like, why can't we just accept refugees? Like, what's the problem? The problem is not with the refugees, that's for sure. Um, no. Yeah, and we're and we're like stranding we're stranding people in in Afghanistan that were like translators for our army and like risked you know their lives uh, to, and continue to, to risk their us. lives every day that they get stuck there because they did yeah. help us. Like, yes. Yeah. We should absolutely, you know, do everything that we can to get every single person in Afghanistan that helped us on a plane yesterday to get here. But like, there are also other people that want to come here. And like, there are people who want to go to other countries and there are people who want to stay there. And at the end of the day, it like mostly balances out. Like, I don't ever understand what the problem is with saying you can't both at the same time tout the fact that this is a nation of immigrants and prevent people from immigrating here. We have plenty of space. Space is not an issue. (laughs) Like, like what's the And you hear stories about towns in like Iowa that have like a bunch of refugees from like some country in the Middle East or whatever, and like they're thriving and the people there are so happy that they're there. And I think it was like, was it like uh, the, the, like the CEO of like Zappos or something like some, some like retail CEO, like spearheaded bringing refugees to like somewhere in middle America. I don't know. Yeah, but um, you know, if people want to go, that's fine. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying like force people to like live in certain areas, but like, you know, it wasn't wasn't forced, it was incentivized. (laughs) Yeah, no, and that's fine. Like, I think that's totally fine. Like, if you want to incentivize people to like live in a certain area, like, like more power to you, like, I'm happy for you. But like, again, we just cannot tout the fact constantly that we are a nation of immigrants and then just keep people out, especially especially people who helped us and risked their lives and are like risking like persecution and execution in places where like they helped us and the puppet governments that we put in place are no longer in power. And like, now these people are at risk of dying every single day they stay there. Like, and we do nothing, nothing to help them. We have the space and you know what? We need it. (laughs) We need the diversity. We need the intelligence. Like we are lacking in so much in this country. Um, and so many different professions where we deny people visas every single day and like legitimately need their help. Like we should be paying them to come here. There's, yeah, there's a lot of people in this country that need to meet people that are not from where they're from. Yeah. Um, and AOC pointed this out on, on, a, on a TV show. I saw a clip that like, this is an opportunity, you know, a lot of uh, Ukrainian refugees are going to get temporary protected status. And then, you know, there's an opportunity there to set up a pathway to citizenship for them. And then lastly, uh, you know, have the same thing for refugees from other places, temporary protected status with a pathway to citizenship. That would be a great thing if that happened. Although knowing America, uh, hmm. the fear of getting a pathway to citizenship for 
uh, you know, from like people from like Somalia or whatever would be a reason to not give it to people from Ukraine rather than like having it work for Ukraine and then extending it to other places. Um, I really just want to say this. This shouldn't be the reason why people all of a sudden become okay with like immigration and refugee status. But like I challenge people to actually check like and look into your own <laughs> your own family tree um, and figure it out. Because if immig- did your family come over on the Mayflower? <laughs> so, yeah, no, exactly. Because like, what, no, no, not even did your family come over on the Mayflower? Like, are you a hundred percent native? Like, <laughs> did you? Yeah, well, no. The answer is no to everybody, but. The answer is no to most people because even, and that's, that's the thing is like, even people who are native, probably not a hundred percent. Like there's probably somebody in there who like, you know, married someone who was also an immigrant, but like, I really challenge people to think about it. Like where, like at what point would your family line have gotten cut off? Because if immigration was as difficult as it is today in the forties, like I wouldn't be here my dad wouldn't be here. Like it wouldn't, like, it just would have never happened. Like it's, it's, but it's all over the place. Like my mom's family. Yeah. Part of my mom's family actually did come over in like 1605 or some weird shit. Like we have our family tree going back on both sides of my mom's family. So like, yeah, they've been here for like a good long while, but like if immigration was as hard as it is today, even less than a hundred years ago, like I wouldn't be here today. Like, like, let's think about that. Like if people really need it to be personal, then figure it out. Yeah. And even the, the like 1605 uh, white people that came over a good chance, they were like religious uh, refugees sort of, or, you know, pilgrims is what that is. Right. No, I don't, we're not a hundred percent positive and there's no way to be a hundred percent positive. Um, the person who came over that is like a direct descendant, very, very like way back there, obviously, um, actually came from Germany. So we didn't think that it was like religious persecution. We thought that it was like just a need to travel. Um, I don't know. <laughs> okay. um, it didn't seem to be like a religious persecution, but again, there was like really no way to figure that out. Um, but his name was John Schumacher. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. So that was and, my, that was my first and the, like the first of any of my descendants to come here. That was the earliest, but then like her other side of the family came here in like the 1850s. And um, like I said, my dad's family only came here in the forties and, you know, whatever. And uh, if we do uh, have any uh, indigenous listeners, please uh, reach out. My DMs are open at CMilch on Twitter. Uh, love to, would love to hear from you and what you think of uh, the podcast and this topic and others. Um, yeah. 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 Um, so that is is that that's that's our Ukraine discussion. Um, Last night, uh, so we're, we're recording this on March 2nd. Last night was the State of the Union. Um, did you watch uh, in real time? Yes, I watched most of it in real time, but unfortunately I was on the phone for the first like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
the, the, what I found most interesting was like the hobnobbing before, not even by Biden, just like I like I would I saw uh, Mitt Romney talking to Joe Manchin and they were like smiling and laughing. And I was just I was just very angry. But um, so was, was I just, get that feeling, too. And like I had it on. I had it. I was it, it was on, but it was muted for like the first 10 minutes of it. So I missed the hobnobbing and I missed like the first little bit of it. Um, but I, and I get that feeling of like, why are they speaking to each other? Like, why is this like, it, it annoys me when people who like constantly fight with each other and kill legislation, like, you know, are, are like schmoozing, but I will say this and I don't know how true it is. I've heard from people, um, who are elected to office and who have worked, um, in government for like a while. And especially people who worked like a long time ago, that one of the biggest problems with government is that when it became an obligation of elected officials to leave Washington, D.C. to go back to their district on the weekends, most elected officials, depending on where you live in the country, fly down on like Monday night or Tuesday morning, work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then come back to their district Thursday night. When that obligation to like come back to the district started is when a lot of like the breakdown in relationships started happening on Capitol Hill because it was less insular. Well, yeah. And so like, I'm not like, I I don't, I want to say like, I'm not advocating for like one way or another, but the, the relationships that existed between elected officials stopped existing because they weren't spending any time with each other. And I'm not saying that we'll send them and become a fan of Mitch McConnell or Lindsey Graham or like want to like hang out with them. But when you have a personal relationship with somebody, it makes it easier to work with them, even if you don't agree with them. And it's the same way that like most of the time, if you send an elected official out canvassing, like people aren't going to slam the door in their face. And like, maybe you'll end up having a little bit more respect for someone when you actually meet them in person, because people in person are very different than they are on television when they're trying to like make a political party point. Um but they should be talking to each other. Like that is like, I, I don't care what they do like on their weekends, but like they should be talking to each other and they should be trying to work together because if you're not, then like government is just going to stay the way that it is now where they really don't get much of anything done. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And we can spend hours that we've already spent bitching about the filibuster and all these other things that make it difficult for government to actually like do work. But I do think like they need to communicate with each other in order to actually do things. Definitely. And I mean, Manchin and Romney, I think, are a lot uh, closer uh, than, say, like Elizabeth Warren and Manchin. But I mean, it was more like just how like laughing and happy a lot of them were, um, which I mean, whatever, like, I, I'm sure if I was a senator, I'd be joking about whatever, too. But it was just like the sense of like, these are all the people that are so like, it, they, it, you just get the feeling that, that they're like, so disconnected from the consequences of their work and like, their actions. And they're just like, laughing it up in the house chamber. Um, and speaking of seeing constituents, did you see that video of some lady like yelling at Senator Rick Scott from Florida in like a Starbucks about taking people's health care away? Yeah, I did. Oh, wait, I sent it to you. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't. Yeah, no, I, I, I forgot. Those things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but I, like, I remember like at the end of, of me talking about it that I did send it to you. But, yeah, it was great. It, yeah, it was hilarious. And, you know, unfortunately, I don't think that woman yelling at him is actually going to change his mind about anything, but it definitely gave me a laugh. No. Yeah. Did Jeff, because they reminded me of like those viral videos of Jeff Flake um, when uh, when they were trying to appeal, uh, repeal Obamacare. Um, what was Adi Barkin? He was like, like a big, you know, big time uh, healthcare advocate this then and, and now. Um, I don't think he ended up changing his vote, but I, because uh, if he had, it wouldn't have come down to McCain. Do you remember? No, I don't exactly remember, but I think that you never know what's actually going to change somebody's mind or how it's going to impact them. So it's worth doing it as long as you aren't personally threatening them. Like that's my only line. <laughs> Yeah, that's I mean, really, that's it. You know, you want to yell at him in Starbucks. Dude's like clearly walking around with his security. He's a governor. He's not out to dinner with his kids. I mean, former governor, current senator. uh, Right. Sorry. Yeah. But like, he's you know, he's not out to dinner with his kids. Like, you know, and to a certain extent, you really have to expect that when you get into government. I I say this all the time and I will keep saying it. You're always going to piss somebody off. You have to expect that going into government. If everybody likes you, it means you're lying to at least half the people. So, oh, and that that sort of reminds me of something I thought I had during our Ukraine discussion is that you know Zelensky be you know going from comedian to mm-hmm. president, like it's like that's a good example of like really you, the listener. You can run for office and do fine. Like Donald Trump wasn't the shittiest president of all time because he was just, you know, a reality TV star. He was the shittiest president of all time because he's a terrible person and a con man and a narcissist. So, you know, we don't need career politicians to be politicians necessarily. We need people with morals, integrity, and values. Like you, listener. Um, So... Oh, so um, State of the Union, uh, did you catch the fact that like after he said like, God bless America, God bless our troops or whatever, he, he said, go get him? Like mm-hmm. that was the last thing that Biden said. And I still, I thought maybe like on Twitter today, there'd be some explanation for it, but I had no idea what he was talking about. Like, are you talking about Putin? Like he also apparently ad-libbed uh, he has no idea what's coming. So, um, I mean, you were before we started recording, you were talking about how you're finally watching the Americans. Like, that's what that all sounded like. Very strange. Because we're not assassinating Putin. Like, it's not happening. No. No. Um, no. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm still waiting. Yeah, I'm still waiting to hear, like, what that was about. Very strange. I don't know, but presidents typically, I mean, we're going to exclude Donald Trump from any generalization about presidents because he wasn't a real president. He was just there for four years. Um, I'm not saying he didn't get elected, but he wasn't a real president. Um, (laughs) He doesn't know. John Bolton said he doesn't know where Ukraine is. And he thought that Finland was like in Russia or something. I mean, that's really unsurprising. I mean, how many times did that happen over the course of like him being in office of him just not understanding like basic 
facts about the world. Um, the best was when he thought that health insurance was life insurance. Like um, he, had, he was asked to describe what health insurance is, or like he had, he was in the position to describe what it was, and he described life insurance. That was amazing. I think I've mentally blocked out a lot of things that occurred when he was in office. Um, but most presidents, like they try to avoid doing stuff like that. Bill Clinton was famous for completely disregarding whatever his speechwriters wrote and just ad-libbing and like making it back to like the end of the speech and like usually giving the end of it too. He was like famous for doing that all the time. Um, but most presidents try to avoid doing things like that. I think that Biden does it a lot. And I think it has to do with like his speech training because he had a stutter when he was a kid. So I don't know how much that is like speech training versus <laughs> like something that may actually happen. Well, certain. I mean, yes, that definitely factors in during the course of the speech, but like this was just something he added on after he was essentially done talking. And I mean, so the way it sort of sounded was more like, you know, like, go get them, like, like yeah. to the whole country, like, go, go be a great country. But it just came off as like, go get him. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't really know. I, you know, like you said, I can't imagine <laughs> that there are any. Like that's the go order. <laughs> No, yeah, I just, I can't imagine that there are any plans in any nation to try to assassinate Putin. I don't think that that is like a prospect, but I do not, like, I do believe that there are like plans in place to do things, whether or not they're good or people will agree with them or they go far enough is another question. Um, But I don't imagine that... (laughs) that, you know, national security is kind of just sitting around going, eh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, seem like what, like, unrealistic. <laughs> so as far as, like, the substance speech goes, um, what stood out to me was a negative thing. Um, and, and my view is when he was saying, the answer is not to defund the police. The answer is to fund the police. Um, and I think the only way that that is a true statement is if the question is, how do you appeal to white moderates and raise your approval with them? Because there's no evidence to suggest that the solution to public safety uh, issues that we have is to give the police more fund. They the New York City Police Department's budget, I think, is like $10 billion, and the Ukrainian military's budget is $6 billion. Like, if funding the police was the answer, we'd be probably the safest country in the world. So, I mean, here's, here's the issue with this. You are, I completely agree with you, 100%. When you are writing anything that's going to go out, like this, like the State of the Union or a newspaper or a political ad, you are appealing to the lowest common denominator. You are not trying to speak to the educated or well-informed. You are trying to speak to the reactionary people. And unfortunately saying something like, 
we should continue funding police at what we're funding them now and find money for mental health services and, you know, first responders that are actually appropriate to the situation is too complicated for most people to understand and leads to politicians doing dumb shit like saying we shouldn't defund the police, we should fund the police because that is just like catchy and people will understand it. Even if you have, and I don't know what his intentions are, but even if you have zero intention of actually upping funding for police, it's just like a catchy thing to say. And at the end of it, you can say like, well, we maintained the levels, it's fine. Um, But it's really unfortunate because I think the State of the Union is a really good opportunity to educate people because you have people paying attention and maybe spend an extra five minutes explaining why it would be better to fund like mental health teams for like mental health calls and like all these different things and how they could benefit the country and individual people's lives instead of just going for like the clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to say, you know, even if you wanted to, you know, counteract the whole defund, you could say like, you know, we're not going to defund the police. What we're going to do is fund, you know, community programs, mental health, blah, 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 blah. Or you yeah, can even throw in like, we're not going to defund the police. They need to be funded and they need the right resources. We have to, we have to also fund this, this, and this, and this, and this. Yeah. You don't find that difficult because you are an educated person who can think beyond like simple rhetoric. Um, and it's unfortunate. So are his speech writers. <laughs> so are his speech writers, but not the people he's talking to. Yeah. And that is what they care about. And they also care about polls that simply ask people, are you in favor of defunding the police? And when people say, no, I don't want to defund the police, they keep me safe. Like there's no education to this. There's no understanding to this. Like you're not actually trying to change people's minds. You're just giving them what you think that they want. I don't agree with it, but that is in fact what they're actually doing. And it's frustrating. Also, how about not mentioning defunding the police? Yeah, that was my second thing. Is like, you literally (laughs) have to bring it up. It's that simple. Yeah, because like, all that, like, if you're thinking about it in, like, political terms, like, bringing it up is not, like, saying, like, it's not like Fox News is like, oh, damn it. He said he wants to fund the police. We can't attack him anymore for this. Like, it's not going to matter. So, like, just keep, like, keeping it as a thing is, like, in that way is just not... So here is how I am thinking, like, this, the decision to keep that in the speech one. The midterms are this year. Democrats are going to fucking lose because we don't spend any time speaking to our own base, but we spend a lot of time speaking to Republicans and white moderate independents. So the decision was we want to activate some of them for us. So let's have a conversation with them instead of the people who agree with us. And that has how the decision to leave the comment about defunding the police went when it came to the state of the union. And it's sad because what you are actually doing is trying to sway people who don't want to vote for you to vote for you, which is probably not going to be that effective. And you are suppressing the vote of the people who would support you if you would just do what was right instead of what is convenient. Yeah. Um, I would say depressing the vote. We leave suppressing up to Republicans. Um, True. (laughs) But... But yeah, and it's just it just is another example of this whole dynamic, or just reminds me of it of like, um, like the leadership 
in the, the Democratic Party is like old people that don't want to be aggressive with like when it comes to power. They don't want to they don't want to like they don't want to draw power from, you know, the left flank, the real base of the party. Um, and and then, you know, that's all well and good. I mean, it's not all well and good, but like, okay, that's the dynamic. And then when like Build Back Better fails, somehow it's like, oh, the progressives in the party are at fault. When like, they're the ones that wanted to pass Biden's agenda. And and it's like, it still somehow gets spun by like the mainstream media who is, has like a centrist bias. And of course, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the democratic establishment that it's somehow the progressives fault that the moderates are like, we're losing elections um, when the moderates get to like call all the shots. It's crazy. I mean, moderate in the U.S. has just become another way of labeling people who don't want to actually do anything. And it's really unfortunate. Conservatives. <laughs> the, real, the actual conservatives. Because the Republican Party isn't conservative in any sense. Anymore. Um, yeah. but anyway, it, Except for conserving white power. Yeah. But like, think about this for a second, because I think about this all the time. Progressive has become another way of saying socialist whether or not that's actually accurate is doesn't actually matter because that is the two of them mean the same thing now to people, especially people who are fighting against progressives. They mean the same thing. So progressive and socialist mean the same thing. And the country that everyone is currently terrified of is Russia, which is really the successor to the Soviet Union that everybody in this country was terrified of because they were socialists like i know it's like and the actual the actual biggest like geopolitical rival and like threat is uh, is china which is actually communist yeah so and people don't like people in this country just assume communism and socialism are the same thing but it's crazy because this is like where we're coming from it's like back to these like old school like socialism is the devil and it's going to be the downfall of like the world and progressives really just want this country to be socialist and they don't care about america or individuals or yada 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 like i could go on and on and on but like we're currently sitting you know on the brink of like major global war with a country that's, you know, modern roots are in socialism and like part of the country is trying to get this country to be more socialist. Like it's, this is the way that people think about it. And like, they really do still think about like the Soviet Union and socialism and how detrimental it is. And like, don't care that people are dying because they don't have access to healthcare. Like they don't care that people are dying every day because they can't feed themselves like an adequate diet. Like it's wild, but like, this is the country that we live in. And that's like what the fight is going to be for all of our lifetimes is like convincing people that they should care about other people. Yeah. Um, what, uh, anything from the, the state union stand up to you? I mean, the defund the police thing definitely stood out to me. I like did a double take. I was like, I can't believe this is even a conversation that is happening right now. Um, 
I'm not a person who is very into tradition or professionalism or anything like that. But I was a little annoyed when that psycho congresswoman like was yelling at Biden when he was trying to talk about his son. Um, Over. Yeah, I don't care. She's a psycho. Her name doesn't matter. Um, I don't want to give her like free advertising. Um, <laughs> she's a fucking lunatic. I mean, honestly, like that woman is just out of her mind. Um, yeah. The fact that you are walking around Congress with a gun, I'm sorry, but like, no. Um, whatever. But it, it just, the, you know, there's the a weird person to- running against her. Sorry, the person running against her put out this ad. Uh, it it's amazing. I mean, it, it there's like constant like shit falling from the sky, and the whole thing is that like she's a bullshitter. Sorry, uh, sorry to interject. That's no, hysterical. Can you send it to me because I want to watch it? I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, um, I do follow the woman running against her on Twitter, but I don't use Twitter that often. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I'm, it was, I'm, a, it was a man. Okay, I'm following. Oh, I'm following the woman on Twitter who's running against Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's who I'm following. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So no, send that to me though, because I really want to watch it. But yeah, there's just like a way to be a person, you know. And and we like we as a country constantly complain about the fact that you know politicians are robotic. But then anytime they ever try to discuss something personal, we attack them for using you know their kids or their personal life to gain political favor. So, you know, when I get it, like Biden's not my favorite person. He wasn't my first choice. Like I didn't vote for him in the primary, but there's like a way to be a person, you know, even if it's like a progressive, like when a conservative is talking, like, I I don't know, like my, my, I guess my line really gets drawn at like being an asshole when someone's talking about their dead child um, or (laughs) people's lives, because I just don't think that that is beneficial. Um, And I do sincerely believe that everybody has like a right to a trial and (laughs) a right to, you know, not be shot down in the middle of the street, whether you're an elected official or a black guy going for a jog, um, or a black kid buying Skittles at the store and walking home. Like I just, I, I, there's like a way to be a person and yelling at people in the middle of the state of the union. When you're trying to talk about like your deceased child is not a way to be a person. And she's been all over Twitter all day today, like touting the fact that she did it. Um, and it really drives me insane. (laughs) Yeah. That's your whole shtick is that you yelled at the sitting president in the middle of a speech. Yeah, they're professional trolls. The uh, this this new wave of Republican congressional psychos. Yeah, and it's just you know it's 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 funny because (laughs) it's exactly what we could all expect out of conservatives to do. They get mad, you know, when progressives are talking about how professionalism is racist and classist and so many different things and you should be a certain way and you should look a certain way and women should act a certain way and men should act a certain way and there are only two genders so let's not even talk about anybody else but when it comes to themselves it's like you don't have to then turn around and live by your own values like you don't have to be the person that you're constantly telling everyone else to be just yeah 
can't, you know, like you're telling women, you and Candace Owens, all those other people are telling women that you should be staying home and taking care of your kids and you're out every day working. Like who's watching your kid? Phyllis Schlafly all over again, just a new generation, slightly more diverse. Yeah. Um, elsewhere in this speech, um, Biden started to brand his agenda as um, lowering costs, um, which I thought was uh, a good move and a good sign, um, you know, because inflation is like the domestic issue on everybody's mind and, um, you know, passing some version of Build Back Better, um, you know, with that sort of as the motivator sounds promising. Um, a little bit before we started recording, uh, Ezra Klein tweeted out that like this, the newest iteration of like what Mansion is willing to do is like um, the revenue raisers are raising taxes on corporations and rich people. Um, and negotiating drug prices and then um, splitting the benefits between climate and uh, lowering the the debt or reducing the debt or the deficit or whatever, um, which is kind of stupid, but whatever. Um, like, you know, we talked about the climate provisions, um, the, 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 the tax credits and how great they would be. So... It would be nice if they could um, throw in some of the social spending, like the child tax credit would be great, or you know some other, um, you know, measures to like uh, address like childcare costs. But if we just end up, quote unquote, just end up at you know passing half a trillion over half a trillion dollars in climate provisions, um, you know, we take that win and move on to fight the next day, you know? Yeah. And speaking of like costs of things, I just, we didn't talk about this before. Um, and I, I don't remember if you mentioned this in the speech last night or not, but the price of gas is on the rise. And I know that the government released some of the oil that we have like in storage to hopefully stop that rise in costs and there's going to come a point like everything else like covid and so many other things where people get frustrated with spending that much money on gas um and start begging for some kind of compromise with russia and i really just there are people fighting for their lives in ukraine and in russia probably soon too that don't give a shit about the price of your gas. Um, and I can't blame them because they're trying to figure out how they're going to eat. <laughs> they're trying to figure out if they're ever going to see their kids again that have left. Like they are trying to just figure out how they're going to live until tomorrow. Um, and I'm not agreeing with it. And we should do something like temporarily, at least like reduce the tax on it in the U S or something to stop like what is going to inevitably be a $5 a gallon gas tank. But I am really not as sympathetic to the people, especially the rich white people in government who are going to be bitching about the price of gas when there are people in the Ukraine that are not going to be alive tomorrow to complain about anything. Yeah. So a few things. One, um, uh, one thing that Manchin did indicate was that along with the climate, so like this whole 
um, you know, the, 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 you know, the Russian invasion, everything um, has, you know, kind of highlighted um, the benefits of not relying on Russian oil and gas or oil and gas period. That was sort of yeah. one of the things that um, I think this was Ezra Klein also his sort of point that the, the missed opportunity um, with the speech was one to frame uh, impending rise in gas prices as sort of the cost for supporting Ukraine um, because, you know, it's going to be a result of the sanctions and, and you know, everything else. Um, and then also framing more, you know, the, the, you know, highlighting the importance of a climate transition um, you know, away, and multiple people pointed this out, but away from fossil fuels, period, would help, you know, you know, we wouldn't be reliant on, like, these uh, petro states that are run by people like Putin, people like um, uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia that, you know, murder journalists. Um, so that was sort of I think what people would have liked to see more out of Biden. And then on that note, um, Manchin said, you know, in the, when talking about um, the bill that he would support, he said, you know, not just like we, like, you know, we need to have all this uh, clean energy stuff, but we also need to up natural gas and other fossil fuel production in the United States. So I think he'd push for that to unfortunately be part of the, uh, the, the climate bill as well. Um, he also made some comments that made it sound like he didn't know what, a, what climate was. Um, he said something like, nobody wants to drink like uh, polluted water, um, which like they're tangentially related, but like that's not what the climate is. Um, so more evidence that he really might not be that smart. Um, but uh, yeah, on our next uh, topic, uh, there, there's a UN climate report that was just released. Um, and then all this, this following info comes from the New York Times article about it. Um, so this was a report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a body of experts convened by the UN comprised of 270 researchers from 67 countries. Um, and I have a lot, you know, I've, I've made a lot of notes here. Um, you know, I, I, we talked a lot about Ukraine City News, so I'll make this brief. It was not good news. Um, basically, if, if uh, we're not off of fossil fuels by 2050, we're going to get over this, like, we're, we're at 1.1 degrees Celsius above, like, whenever the Industrial Revolution started. And once we get to above, 1.5 um that's when things get really bad um right now we're on pace to warm somewhere between two and three degrees celsius this century um if 1.5 celsius were reached eight percent of the world's farmland could become unsuitable for growing food coral reefs which buffer coastlines against storms and sustain fisheries for millions of people will face more frequent bleaching from ocean heat waves and decline by 70 to 90% at two degrees Celsius of warming, warming between 800 
million and 3 billion people globally could face chronic water scarcity because of drought, including more than one third of the population in Southern Europe. Crop yields and fish harvest in many places could start declining. An additional 1.4 million children in Africa could face severe malnutrition, stunting their growth. At three degrees warming, uh, the risk of extreme weather events could increase fivefold by century's end. Uh, flooding from sea level rise and heavier rainstorms could cause four times as much economic damage worldwide as they do today. As many as 29% of known plant and animal species on land could face a high risk of extinction. Um, and it notes that over the past half century, the number of deaths worldwide from storms, floods, and other extreme weather events has actually fallen by more than half because of improved early warning systems and disaster management. Um, and investment in public health have meant fewer people are succumbing to diseases like cholera, even as rising temperatures and heavier rainfall facilitated their spread. But the point is, um, these are kind of like shorter term, you know, not even fixes, but like mitigations where there's not enough long-term preventative action. Um, and, you know, this is like the millionth time that the bell is being rung on this. Um, it also points out that many communities are actually acting in ways that increase their vulnerability. Um, one reason flood risk is growing along the coasts is that millions of people are moving to low-lying areas that are endangered by sea level rise. And uh, some adaptation measures have unintended consequences, unintended consequences like um, seawalls protect certain places. They can also redirect flooding into populated areas elsewhere. Um, irrigation can help protect crops against drought. They can also deplete groundwater resources. So like, we got to get our asses off of fossil fuels is uh, really the message yeah. there. I mean, it's, it's almost perfect timing that in the last year, a bunch of European countries have already said that they are imposing restrictions and ending the sale of of like gas powered cars in the next decade, uh, and now the price of gas is going through the roof because of what is going on with Russia. Um, and we obviously have like the climate to consider too, but we have these European countries who are trying to do the right thing, who are trying to make good decisions, and we just don't. We don't want to. People still need their freaking muscle cars. <laughs> yeah. Um... Freedom right, of choice. So, I'm an individual. I get to do whatever I want, regardless of others. Yeah. Um, and then we can move quickly to Texas, where the lawsuits have started. Um, again, this was uh, reported in the New York Times. Give uh, a few examples. Um, the first, like, reported, uh, like, investigation is actually with someone that works um in the agency um that does the investigating um she she works on the review of reports of abuse and neglect she was placed on administrative leave last week on, and on uh, friday was in, was visited by an investigator from the agency which is also seeking medical records related to her child they've resisted um turning those records over but you know the the article just gives examples of parents that are trying to do the best for their kids, their you know their kids, their transgender kids, and are just getting persecuted by the state. Um, it was pretty moving to you know read the, their quotes in support of their kids. 
Um, there was like an hour before we started recording um, a victory for like one of the parents um, that was, uh, you know, being subject to these new, you know, anti-trans laws. So the, there was a judge in Austin that ruled the state of Texas may not enforce actions uh, targeting the parents of uh, a certain transgender teen. And then the uh, we have the ACLU next Friday is going to try to enjoin the whole thing. Um, and judging by you know our, our conversation with Remy last week, um, you know it sounds like you know legal victories uh, for you know on the side of. Uh, trans kids and their families are on the way nothing's assured um never know what happens when it gets to the supreme court but um so far the fight against it is uh was successful um and then there's just another piece about how fucked up voting is in texas essentially um they especially the when it comes to mail-in voting they have this provision that you have to like either use uh, like the last four digits of your social or your driver's license number, I think. And you also have to remember which number you used the last time. Um, and the, the, the article talks about a 76 year old woman who is an appointed volunteer deputy registrar. She's suing Texas um, because the law sort of makes it illegal for her to do her job, which is, um, you know, like part of her job is to solicit mail-in ballot applications. This is the law makes that illegal. Um, and uh, they, so they also added new, um, they, they banned 24 hour polling places and drive through voting, you know, in addition to the, the ID rules and, uh, and the mail-in ballot application thing. Um, and this is a place that's already designed to suppress votes. And then there's like some pathetic example of the secretary of state who uh, he, he released a video for like how to fill out the paperwork a few days before the deadline to request a mail-in application. And then there's a quote uh, from him. In fairness, it's a first go around for everybody. We're mm -hmm. all getting on the horse at the same time. And quite frankly, it's bucking a lot. Just like awful folksy Texas shit. Um, and it's worth noting, going back to the uh, the, the anti-trans like legal opinion in Abbott letter, they were issued, you know, right before this primary that happened yesterday was election day for that. Um, and one of the, I think Abbott's strategists sort of just admitted that um, they called it like a 70 to 80% like issue in terms of like polling which I don't know who they were polling because like polls of the country are very against these types of laws. Um, but maybe it was like Republican primary voters in Texas or some shit. Um, but uh, some results that came out of Texas, um, Henry Queller uh, or Quayar, I've only seen, uh, I, don't, I think I've only seen it written, but he is a centrist, borderline like conservative Democrat um, and he's going to go to a runoff with Jessica Cisneros who I think might have even had more votes than him um, and then a bunch of other progressives did well in the, the Democratic primaries um, so some good results there 
but uh, voting in Texas remains a mess. And probably will for many years to come. Yeah. Even if Beto beats Abbott, which hopefully he does. That would be great. I mean, hopefully he does, but if he doesn't take the legislature with him, then it's kind of a hollow victory because at the end of the day, there's only so much power the governor has. Yeah. Um, Speaking of powers of the governor, uh, our governor in New York, uh, Governor Hochul, has uh, made some news with a proposal um, to bring private uh, prison labor back to New York. So rather than raise wages paid uh, by the state, where right now people make wages like 16 cents an hour for working in the cafeteria or 65 cents an hour for hand sanitizer that they're not allowed to use, um, she's proposed passing a constitutional amendment to overturn uh, New York's century-old ban on private employment of incarcerated people. Um, The claim is that private employers would pay higher wages, like the same wages that would be offered for comparable work outside of prison and offer more job training. The measure is part of a broad agenda. She's proposed dubbed jails to jobs, uh, quote unquote, um, to reform the state's reentry system and help people secure jobs and housing after they're released from prison or jail, which sounds like a noble goal. Um, But advocates worry about uh, lax oversight in these programs that lead to exploitation. um, And the fact the proposal allows states to garnish up to 50% of wages. There is one advocacy group, New Yorkers for United Justice, which is supporting the proposal and working with Hochul on trying to have just implementation. Have you heard of them? No, it's not an organization that I know anything about. And I'm curious, I have some friends that work at organizations that sort of surround this issue, what they think about it. Um, and I haven't had the chance to reach out to them because I don't have any hours left in the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, like on its, it seems to me that this is the kind of thing that on its face seems like a good idea. Um, because this if it was implemented that you could just like have private employment, this would mean that people could, depending on what they did before, like maintain employment while they're actually serving out a sentence. Like it seems, you know, (laughs) it seems like something that could be workable if I had any faith in the government to actually successfully implement programs. Yeah. Um, Um, But, you know, if, if the government is going to be able to, first of all, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're working for the government or a private employer, you should be getting paid minimum wage period. Um, Like, no, you're, you're doing a job. There's a minimum wage in the state. At this point, it's between, you know, 14 and $15, depending on what part of the state you're in. Like, that's the amount of money you should be making for doing a job. But, you know, if you could maintain your job like while you were serving out a sentence or if you could gain like new employment while you're serving out a sentence so that you potentially had a job upon release like that really seems like a good thing to me it's so hard to reintegrate after you finish serving a term it may also convince some employers of the need to stop barring people with felony convictions from having a job Um, but if the government's going to be able to garnish up to 50% of its wages, and if 
maintaining employment is a requirement to not be punished while you're in jail. There's too much exploitation available in that. Yeah. So um, it sounds like, you know, when, when this has been implemented elsewhere, um, a lot of corporations have been found to skirt wages um, or skirt wage requirements. And then it's often questionable whether the work is actually voluntary, like it's supposed to be, but then in practice, it's not. For context, um, the so this was a this was on New York Focus, um, and in the article, the groups that were cited as to being against it um, were Legal Aid Society, New York Civil Liberties Union, Color of Change, and Citizen Action of New York. Um, they said in a statement that we cannot quote cannot let Governor Hochul take us back to the past. So, yeah, I think your reading of it. Um, is on point there are like sounds on its face that could be good always the implementation has been bad who knows maybe this group that we haven't heard of before uh new york new yorkers united for justice will actually uh get this implemented in a in a just way um not particularly yeah i just keep thinking there's a reason why it's so difficult to do research with people who are serving currently serving a prison sentence and it's because of the exploitation you're in jail you can't say no um i mean you can but like it it makes it very difficult to say no um and you risk punishment for not being involved and, and whatever like there's a reason why research is very strictly monitored on any group of people that could be subject to like undue influence. So I just don't, I think it's a great idea in theory, but it needs to be seriously considered and the ramifications of it need to be seriously considered before like an attempt to even implement it. Yeah. And like what, what activists are focusing their energy on is um, getting a bill passed that enacts a $3 minimum wage. Um, and an end to forced labor in prison. So that's where the minimum wage in New York State is between fourteen and fifteen dollars an hour. That's what the minimum wage should be. Yeah, yeah. And so the fact that that you know these are you know well-meaning activists like this yeah. the person that had a, a job six, earning sixteen cents per hour um, when he was uh, incarcerated, he is now one of the people um, you know trying to get the three dollar. Uh, an hour past. Um, so the next thing uh, in Huntington on Long Island, um, a housing uh, project, like not a literal project, but uh, you know, subsidized. Uh, or there's a, there's a housing development that has been. Um, like that was proposed originally in the 70s, I believe, to allow, yeah, allow construction of 146 subsidized townhomes and apartments on, quote, a scrubby lot next to an electrical substation. Um, It was finally approved in December after four decades of advocacy, including a Supreme Court case where the people trying to get this built did win, but this was in 1988, and uh, the town of Huntington still managed to delay the project. Um, 
and some context here um, in Suffolk County, uh, freestanding single family homes account for more than 81% of housing stock. Um, that's a higher share than in any of the other uh, 30 counties in the New York metropolitan area, except for Pike County in Eastern Pennsylvania, which is very sparsely populated. Um, Nassau County is close behind at 75%. Uh, for context, Westchester County is at 44%. Bergen County, New Jersey, across the river from New York is 52 and Fairfield County, Connecticut is 57. Um, of the 100 most populous counties in the United States, many of which are suburban, only one, Fort Bend County, Texas, outside of Houston, has a larger share of single-family housing. Suffolk and Nassau ranked second and third. Um, now, they, the, for those not, you know, haven't thought about this issue a lot and aren't making the connection, you know, the percentage of single-family housing um, basically, that just shows you how little, like, affordable housing there is in the area. Um, and it's like a sign of, uh, you know, of inequality. Um, and the best way to, or one of the best ways to get affordable housing, you know, make housing more affordable, solve uh, the housing crisis is to, uh, is, is to fix the zoning laws in a given area where they only allow single family. Um, and obviously Long Island is, uh, quite far behind. Um, there are two bills, uh, proposed in the state legislature that, uh, was mentioned. This was a op-ed in the New York times by Benjamin Applebaum. He mentioned one bill, um, proposed by, uh, state Senator Pete Harcum that would make it easier for homeowners to create accessory apartments, like in a basement or garage. This was originally endorsed by Governor Hochul, then she backtracked when she got blowback from politicians like Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman, who it said, quote, the worst, the literal yeah. worst. <laughs> Some supporting evidence of that. But here's this quote. We cannot let the governor destroy suburbia, nor turn Nassau County into the sixth borough of New York City. Um Okay, just for context for a second, in all three of the towns and the two cities that are in Nassau County used to be a part of Queens County, and it didn't break off until 1899. So <laughs> we are the sixth borough. Get over it. <laughs> um, another bill proposed by State Senator Brad Hoyleman would allow the construction of multifamily buildings on most residential lots in places like Huntington, the bill would allow duplexes on most land and up to six units on land near railroad stations. So not exactly uh, turning Long Island into a metropolis, um, just adding some uh, more affordable housing for people, or more, more housing supply. It's not even like designated necessarily as affordable housing, quote unquote. Um, but this one development, uh, I guess, is... Uh, kind of a step in the right direction and these bills certainly would be as well so that's something um really everyone listening wherever you are um can keep an eye on is sort of uh you know multifamily zoning you know um and getting uh getting housing built it's something that's needed pretty much everywhere um and then uh so as our sort of our last segment, um, we've had a trend of just sort of highlighting 
something like social work related that's been implemented and been working. This isn't that, but um, it still sort of counts as uh, a development that we, we like to see. So um, in Maine, um, it, Maine is now one of the first uh, states in, in the country to pass a law guaranteeing universal school meals for public school students during the next uh, academic year. It was signed by the governor in June. It's a $34 million bill that will go into effect during the 2022-2023 school year after current federal waivers covering pandemic school meal costs around the country expire. And this is sort of sort of like what we were talking about before, where this like opportunity with Ukrainian refugees getting temporary protective status and a path to citizenship. Um, you know, there were a bunch of waivers put into place during the pandemic because kids couldn't come into school to have meals. So like this, this particular article is actually from pbs.org. It's talking about one district where, um, you know, they, they, you know, they figured out a bunch of different ways to, to get meals to kids and they didn't just do it for um, like the 40 something percent of kids that qualify for like free lunch. They did it for everybody and just doing that out of necessity sort of made them realize, you know, let's just have that be the way things are that every kid that wants it, you know, gets a meal and, you know, it helps reduce the stigma. So there isn't like the free lunch kids because now everyone's a free lunch kid. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we, we love universal programs here at uh, social action briefing. We should feed everybody. Indeed. But specifically children, like if this is where we need to start, I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. Um, and Maine is uh, known as the most food insecure state in the New England region. 43% of Maine students rely on school meals. Um, so that sort of adds to the positivity of this development. Although the fact that they are so food insecure is obviously shitty. But now they're getting universal school meals. So we like to see that. And uh, we like to see you, our listeners, every week. Thank you uh, for tuning in, even though it's not a radio that you tune into. Um, we still use that phrase. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Um, thank you, as always, to Aridian Falcone uh, for inspiring the podcast and our logo. Um, and to my friend Vinny Alfano of Anonymous Hair Salon in Soho for our theme song. We'll see you next week. Bye.